0: given the ability to learn and some space to learn, and then a good team to learn with and from.
1: And our job is to go out there and and start engaging terrain.
0: Go for a couple days into that terrain, hunting with explosives and also checking to see what the snowpack is composed of.
1: To maintain that ability to be surprised and maintain that ability to have an active imagination.
0: I've definitely watched some videos called Idiots with Chainsaws. (laughs) Hey there, this is Chris Bremer, and you're listening to the Avalanche Hour Podcast.
2: You're tuned in to another episode of the Avalanche Hour Podcast. I'm your host for today's episode, Sean Zimmerman-Wall. The Avalanche Hour podcast is proudly presented by MND Safety, a global leader in avalanche hazard management, and our good friends at Ten Barrel Brewing, drink beer outside, with additional support from InterWest Insurance. The goal of this podcast is to create a stronger community through the sharing of stories, knowledge, and news amongst people who have a curious fascination with avalanches.
1: My name is Sean Zimmerman-Wall and I will be the guest host for this session. Caleb Merrill reached out to me a little bit ago and asked me if I might be interested in contributing to the podcast and kind of helping the community and uh, tapping into maybe some of my networks. Uh, Caleb's done a fabulous job over the last five seasons of capturing a, a good cadre of individuals from all walks of the Avalanche world, even some from a little bit on the fringes. And really it's just all about that kind of sharing of ideas and knowledge and news um, for folks that just have that curious fascination with avalanches and snowy environments and the opportunity here um, to tap into some of my network of resources and friends and colleagues was really intriguing to me and when Caleb asked me to do it I kind of thought of one person individual uh, or two that I would like to add and that's a lot based on the experiences I've had as both a ski patroller here in Snowbird, in uh, Utah, working as a as a ski guide here, uh, both mechanized and human powered, doing some work across the equator down in the Andes with an operation that I ran with a colleague of mine years ago, and and now you know into the educational sphere where I spend a good portion of my time uh, working for the American Institute for Avalanche Research Education, or AIRI. I've been the pro program director there for a little bit now, and it's given me a good perspective on kind of where the industry is from an educational perspective, but also where it's headed. But along those lines, I've had great colleagues like the one I'm about to introduce. uh, Christopher Bremer um, is a longtime patroller at Snowbird. He's our snow safety supervisor, one of a team of four. And we've been, teaching colleagues for a number of years with Aerie and uh, also working with some other groups from within the state and from without, even a few international folks along the way. And I thought that uh, Bremer, as we refer to him, on the patrol would be a good uh, addition to this podcast and giving us some of his perspective. He's had training from around the world. He's got a deep, deep bench of experience and uh, we just, we often have some great conversations on the chairlift or on the skin track. And so I thought I'd bring it to the podcast realm here as, as my first guest as the guest host. So without further ado, I'll welcome Chris Bremer. How Chris?
0: Good. Thanks, Sean. Good to be here.
1: Yeah. Thanks for taking the time. And uh, we'll just kind of start with a little bit about your background. I mentioned a few things, but maybe walk us through how you, how you found your way out here. um, Maybe a couple of steps along the way that were really pivotal and kind of what what you've been working on and what you're doing now um, in your professional context.
0: Well, I guess I can think back to the first time I saw an avalanche. I was in Tuckerman's Ravine in New Hampshire and uh, was a little caught off guard by that. And then I can think about reading about some avalanches in the front range that uh some folks in my college got caught in and just kind of blown away because i did go to college in colorado and um you know it just was not something i thought about ever and then all of a sudden people in my college are getting caught and it's getting written up in the newspaper and everything so that was kind of eye-opening And then after college, I came out to Utah, and uh, that's where I started kind of delving into avalanche education. I took an avalanche awareness course in January of 2004, and that was kind of the first bit of awareness. I remember some of the tests we were taught, like the stuff sack test and things that I haven't seen since, (laughs) but it was an intro. And... Then a few years later, I ended up uh, starting to patrol at Snow Basin. I did two years there, and in both of those years, I got my Avi Rec 1 and Avi Rec 2, and uh, I was on my way. And then soon thereafter, I started patrolling at Snowbird, and the rest is history.
1: Yeah, and so you came to us with uh, with some experience on the Snow Basin Patrol, and I know you had... um, done some work with their forecasting office and and some weather observations and stuff when you came to snowbird and were were welcomed onto that team um it was 2010 11 if i'm not mistaken you uh just took right to the job you fit in with the crew and and meshed but one thing i always appreciated about you bremer was kind of just your humble attitude and your willingness to just work hard every day um and at snowbird we run long days um you know, it's not uncommon to, to start at five and end at 530 um, on a lot of days. And I know that as you've kind of transitioned recently in the last three years from being a line patroller to one of our snow safety supervisors, you've really done a, an excellent job of kind of taking the strengths of our program and, and improved on them even further. Um, and working with us there, I've been really impressed by your ability to to work with all of the different personalities on the patrol and and in the snow safety office. Um, But really bring in a lot of your training that you've um, had uh, both here in the States and elsewhere. You might recall back to like our level three in 2015 in Stanley, we were both on the patrol, similar mindsets. um, And I think we both got a lot out of that course, but maybe talk to us a little bit about kind of assuming that role at Snowbird as a snow safety supervisor, as part of that team. And, and what kind of that meant to you and, and how you've run with it so far.
0: Well, so the whole journey into snow safety at Snowbird started with a snow safety apprentice program. And I think that started in 2015 and it ran until 2017 and, um, just applied to that and was one of the people selected to be an apprentice and uh, it just meant like two, one or two days in the office every week to learn the system and see how we worked with the rest of the crew. And uh, I, you know, after the first year, they made a few cuts to the program and slimmed it down, and I maintained my status as an apprentice. And then at the end of that year, April 1st of like 20. 17, they're like made it official. And I was like, well, <laughs> is this an April fool's joke or <laughs> is this real? <laughs> Cause it was quite an opportunity. Um, obviously something that I couldn't pass up, but, uh, that's, uh, the transition occurred April 1st, 2017. And, you know, at that point I was a nine year patroller in total from, you know, my time at Snow Basin on to Snowbird and, it's a pretty small amount of experience to be moving into snow safety at Snowbird. And I was really fortunate that I was given the ability to learn and some space to learn and then a good team to learn with and from. But, uh, you know, I wouldn't say there was too many growing pains. Like I would say by the end of the, my first full year in snow safety, I felt like I could hold my own in there. Excellent.
1: Yeah. And moving into that role, you're, you're definitely picking up the baton from the many that have come before you, um, from the folks like Liam Fitzgerald on, on through the Garski and, and Collinson and, um, Cardinal and, you know, Peter Shorey and, and that long lineage of folks that were there, uh, Randy Trover, of course, um, these folks, uh, I know that you had the opportunity to work with. And, and as you stepped in, I'm sure that Ah, uh, those voices were were there to support you, um, whether in spirit or physically there. Um, and I should also like just let the listeners know that you know that decision wasn't made lightly. I'm sure at the patrol, but it really came because of even in your short tenure as a as a patroller for both Snowbird and Snow Basin, you know you had a lot of opportunities to kind of reach outside of just the Wasatch to do things. Um, whether that have been in your training. Or in some of your other jobs, um, one of which was working south of the border um, in south of the equator in in Chile um, for the mining industry as a forecaster. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about how maybe that experience went for you, what it was like to be in a new environment outside of what you had typically known here in the Wasatch as a forecaster, and and maybe some of the things that um, you learned from that tenure that is helping you succeed now.
0: Yeah, so I had the opportunity to work at the Pimentone Gold Mine in its last two winters of operation before a shutdown that has more or less continued till now. And I do think that getting hired for that job provided some outside validation outside of Snowbird, like it was like this other place thinks I'm worthwhile. And that occurred before I was promoted to snow safety. I do think that working at Pimentón helped on the snowbird side of things as well. And that was a good experience. Uh, yeah, really challenging down there because we have such an abundance of resources at our ski resort, you know, on our highway, everything we've got in Little Cottonwood Canyon. And then you get down to this operation in Chile, where I quickly realized, like, I lose my pocket knife here because it slides down a hill. I'm probably not getting th- anything like that back for another five months until I'm back in the States. So all of a sudden things like that became really important. And it was really important to be cautious with these small tools. You are so used to using that in the U S you could just quickly replace. And, uh, um, that was, that was a big challenge, you know, just, uh, realizing we don't have, uh, the resources aren't, aren't there down there for, um, like to squander. Like if you have something, if you, let's say if you have a pen, you better keep track of that pen, <laughs> like just simple things like that. And so that was, that was one thing that, um, I took away from being down there and then, The, uh, large, large terrain, like I wouldn't say the skiing down in the Andes is good, but the terrain is amazing. (laughs) And, and then it also kind of gave me perspective on avalanches. It was like, well, if you have big mountains like this in Andes, you can have really big avalanches. And I did get to see, um, the evidence of big avalanches there. And then, you know, the first winter coming back to Utah, all of a sudden you realize it's a really, the Wasatch is a very small range with pretty small relief. And the likelihood of seeing a really big avalanche is less in smaller mountains. So that was eye-opening.
1: I can believe it. Um, The Andes definitely have a special place in my heart. And the area that you were in, uh, in the central Andes, um, you were kind of around the Aconcagua area, just a little bit away and on the Argentinian border is definitely big, big time terrain. Uh, like you said, the, the vertical relief is pretty staggering. Um, and so, you know, while you were down there, I know, uh, Caleb has, has had a few folks on before, uh, one in particular, Matt Promomo, who's spent some time down there and he, he did a great job of outlining kind of what that operation was like, uh, and kind of the ins and outs of the the camp and some of the ways that the forecasting, um, methodology was developed down there. And so I won't, I won't have you rehash that too much because Matt did a really fabulous job of it, but I would like to kind of ask, like, what was one of the bigger challenges that you faced being there? Uh, besides maybe the shortage of pens and pocket knives.
0: I wasn't good at Spanish at all. And, um, that, that was a big challenge. And then, uh, you know, some of the other big challenges is with like just mining and extractive industries is the fluctuation in uh, boom and bust. And in this case, we had a three meter storm in two days and it's a 60 kilometer or 80 kilometer road and covered in three meters of snow is going to cost the mine so much money to clear it. Uh, they decided to sit because I think they were not really on a like a good vein of gold anymore so they were just like we're gonna let it melt so it took a few months for it to melt and three about three months in Chile not working (laughs) for the mine and that was really challenging because we've gone down there to you know work as avalanche forecasters and be skiing all the time and That was how we were going to be physically active. And then my coworker and I quickly realized we were not working and we had this apartment in the city and uh, just not much to do. No physical outlet, no (laughs) mental, um, nothing to think about, you know. Uh, So it was really challenging, you know, many mornings you wake up and you're like, what am I doing here? Should I get a flight home? Should I go back to the US where I can work and uh, not be bleeding out money? And you know that was a big challenge. I know it's not really avalanche related, but it was <laughs> employer related. And I know that a lot of people who've traveled to New Zealand and, and to South America for avalanche work, have found out that the, the labor laws are a little different <laughs> And, uh, you may not get paid what you were always, what you were promised. And that was a huge challenge for three months to be down there without any real reason to be.
1: I can, I can imagine. And so, you know, you kind of mentioned that you kind of get into this state of like mental, mental atrophy almost where you're like, oh, I really came down here to put my mind to good use with this avalanche phenomenon and now I can't do it um did you find some constructive outlets while you were there did you did you look for another opportunity to to exercise your your skill set
0: well i met my wife during that time <laughs> those 3 months so
2: that was a, a that was a
0: yeah that was a good opportunity and uh so now i have a small family that uh you know it all started in chile so very happy with that um and, uh, you know, there was a couple opportunities to get up to the mountains during that time. And that was really, like, uh, good for the soul to get up to the mountains, you know. And then, and then as the mine started to reopen, we started getting back there in September and October. And uh, that was, a, like, an amazing return. You know, the weather is really warm and nice, and there's still a decent amount of snow to be had. And, uh, you know, there was times to go up to the mine where I would be the only forecaster there and kind of just get my own routine, you know, eat breakfast, go to the meeting and then get out and ski and, uh, look at some snow and then repeat. Uh, and you're in this really far remote mining camp in the Andes and, You're the only skier for miles and miles around. The other closest skiers are maybe in Portillo, and uh, it's pretty humbling to like (laughs) think that you, if you fall, good luck. So uh, it's really cool to be in those mountains, but it's also uh, you really gotta adjust your risk tolerance, knowing that there's no one, no one will be helping you for a long time.
1: That's a really far out concept, I think, for a lot of us that are used to working in either a crowded range like the Wasatch, or maybe just for an operation where you have what seems like infinite support if something goes wrong. So this is actually like a perfect segue into the topic I wanted to discuss with you today, in a bit more detail, which is, you know, personal risk tolerance, operational risk tolerance, um, and like how do you, how do you manage your own risk? in the setting of I have a job to do um, and then maybe also like what, what does that job do to your risk tolerance outside of work? Do you start to get habituated to taking more risky decisions? Um, so I guess we'll kind of just start with like risk tolerance as, as, a, as a forecaster for a mine. It sounds like you really have to, to keep an eye on yourself and what you're doing. Um, maybe walk us a little bit through what that mindset was like and we'll kind of transition to, to what it's like here in in Utah.
0: Well, I definitely remember um, out skiing above the mine and uh, looking down this line and in the Andes, there's a lot of breakable wind crust and it might be just breakable enough. Your skis break through, but it's strong enough to support a body sliding down it, (laughs) which makes her a really, challenging ski environment. Cause if you break through this carton, as they call it and it trips you up and then you start sliding, it might be strong enough for you to slide on. So um, I just remember looking down one line I was at the top of by myself and realizing this is steep and I really don't know what that snow <laughs> surface is going to be like. And uh, you know, just kick turning and getting out of there. Cause I was like, this is not a risk I can take in the middle of the Andes. I do feel like one of your risk reductions in the Andes is wearing bright colored clothing so that someone can find your body <laughs> in the massive mountains. But yeah, so like looking down some lines and being like, I don't know what that snow surface is like, and I, I'm not willing to test it and just going back to something a little more mellow pitched and that was risk tolerance in the, um, uh, near the mine, And then I think about, you know, at Snowbird, uh, I remember writing a few notes in my notebook a few years back, and there's like, as snow safety, we were taught by Peter Shorey that we need to push and lead lead the patrol into new areas, into areas that haven't been explored yet for the year. So we got to make that push and lead people in. But then at the same time, we also need to temper that with leading in at times that are safe. And so we've got this um, challenging um, duality of tasks where you need to charge into this stuff, but you also, if you, if you charge in and you haven't fully calculated things out, that might be the end of it all. <laughs> so uh, yeah, definitely wrote that down in my notebook. like. We need to lead people into areas, but if we're too bold leading in, we're we're gonna just we're gonna get hurt ourselves and potentially other people. And then with all this thought about risk and whatnot, and, and then dealing or being working in an industry that is pretty risky, you know, seeing how that manifests in my own life in city in Utah, just doing work around the house. And where I'm not working for a company, I'm not, uh, you know, under anyone's like protocols and potentially see, seeing my risk tolerance uh, on my own personal time go through the roof. I can think of this uh, chainsawing activity I was doing this past fall. And I was like, oh, this is uh I've definitely watched some videos called idiots with chainsaws. <laughs> and I was like, I'm probably one or two steps away from being in <laughs> those videos. Um, so yeah, the risk tolerance often in of mine in Chile was very conservative and risk tolerance at the ski resort is dictated by uh, the operation. And then, and then on my own, seeing risk tolerance not dictated by anything and and then having to balance that all out. It's, it's challenging. Yeah.
1: And particularly, you know, as, as, as we age, maybe our risk tolerance and thresholds change. Maybe our life situation changes. You mentioned you have a young family as do I, Um, those kinds of things have definitely stuck with me when I'm doing things in the mountains, um, whether it be on my skis or on my bike, um, or whether I'm up on a ladder pulling down Christmas lights like I was this afternoon, uh, similar to your chainsawing activities. Um, you kind of start to to think about things maybe more than you should, but perhaps it's a good thing um, that you're at least like cognizant that you're, you're outside of your own risk band <laughs> uh, for how you want to be operating.
0: Right. It's easy to start um, thinking in your head. <laughs> Well, okay, so I'll put my foot here and then I'm going to hold onto this branch and then I'm going to cut that branch and you think it all through and uh, then you execute. But with a chainsaw and trees and ladders and all these things, you know, it doesn't take much for your plan to go totally awry. And uh, falling is a good way to die, and chainsaws are a good way to die. And um, just all these things. Compound and, and the margins are so small, and you know I don't know what your uh, Christmas light removal situation was today, but ladders are one of those things, you know, wobbling ladder. So, uh, yeah, risk tolerance and risky jobs.
1: Yeah, and we're fortunate in in this industry to have pretty well established risk management we'll call them best practices and and maybe standards have arisen uh, particularly when it comes to the use of explosives. We, we definitely have standards and procedures that we follow there. Um, Same with artillery. I know that you're part of the the gun program at our resort and um, we have standards and things that are really there aligned to keep us safe. Um, But it's interesting, like you were saying, when you're stepping outside of that traditional standardized environment and you're making decisions with you know either small or or very large consequences Um, so in your kind of everyday skiing whether it be um, you know just around the mountain not necessarily doing mitigation but um, definitely if you're let's say on a on a storm day how you're skiing around the mountain or when you're out in terrain ski touring or, or educating what is your methodology for building in margins do you start well before and think about all the potentialities or do you do it more in the moment what's your philosophy there with building in margins
0: you know with uh with persistent weak layers building in margins is pretty easy because of the fear of getting caught in a larger avalanche um you know newer Snow, I guess the margin, the avalanche size goes down, so the margin potentially goes down. Um, Yeah, I guess, you know, adjusting the margins based on the severity of the consequences. And the trick is that's all estimated consequences, not really for certain. We know what the consequences are when we're skiing. But yeah, um, establishing margins based on perceived, consequence
1: yeah and one thing that I've started incorporating into into my daily routine is kind of thinking about what those consequences might be and and then I guess just having an active imagination uh, was a good piece of advice that I got from a a mentor before and trying to visualize yourself in that situation um, so that when you Do encounter it, or if you encounter it, maybe you have already primed yourself on how you're going to act. And I think that that's one of the greatest things that we can do as we go out into terrain where the avalanche problems may exist, whatever their type might be, um, is to maintain that ability to be surprised and maintain that ability to have an active imagination. Um, So, like the, I guess to the point, it's more about planning. Like, how can you plan? for when you're going to encounter that and maybe you could talk a little bit about how you and your snow safety team plan for the different situations we might encounter let's say on an early season storm morning when we do have somewhat of a
0: wild snowpack potentially
1: a rising hazard and our job is to go out there and and start engaging terrain
0: well, it's definitely nice to be able to do so in calm weather, you know, when instability's not increasing. If instability is increasing, you can just stay away and wait for another day. And then, you know, one of my mentors advised me, you can't like you can't open new terrain if you can't see the hazard. Like if it's storming on a on a given day, you really just can't push into terrain without being able to see what's going on because you've really reduced your, um, you know, ability to sense what's going on when you can't see. So got to be able to see the hazard is something that made it into my notebook early on as well. Um, but yeah, if we're pushing into terrain with, we know the wild, We're just gonna take our time with it. We're gonna go for a couple days into that terrain, hunting with explosives and also checking to see what the snowpack um, is composed of. Is there a slab on week? Because that might be something that we're gonna let sit for a little while. And hopefully get a period of high pressure where we could, after we've done our work and we feel good with opening, we could open and get it skied and chewed up in time for a subsequent storm. It gets tricky when you have short windows of increasing stability and then another storm rolling through. Because uh, it's like, when when are we going to open this? When are we going to open this? When are we going to open this? And that, I wouldn't, I guess I would say it's always challenging to open high consequence terrain. Uh, cause you know, there's different people involved with the decision process. There's snow, snow safety, but then there's also, uh, mountain management marketing, all this stuff. And they, and even this year restaurants did factor in, into, uh, terrain openings somehow. And, uh, It comes down to um, are we, you know, just coming up with excuses and missing opportunities. Like we don't open big terrain on weekends and then we don't open it on a holiday and then we don't open it. So it gets gets challenging because there's a lot of interested parties. And yeah, this year restaurants did factor in into terrain opening timing at Snowbird, (laughs) surprisingly enough.
1: Well, it's been a surprising year um, and so I think, you know, the management definitely has to look after certain things. Um, but you bring up a really interesting point about this collaboration that has to happen and that it's, it doesn't just rest on the, on the uh, the opinions of one group, it, it kind of has to be a collaborative process. And, and certainly in Little Cottonwood Canyon, that's a pretty well-established norm. Uh, if you look at it on the big picture of the Canyon, where you've got multiple ski areas, uh, homeowners in a town, the town itself of Alta. You've got a, a major highway corridor that runs through with over 70 avalanche paths that cross it. Um, and then you have the, the commercial enterprise of skiing and, and everybody coming up there. And there's a lot of collaboration that goes on. Um, I liked what you said a moment ago about being able to see the hazard. I think that that's oftentimes overlooked from people who maybe if you switch settings um, over to a backcountry environment, where they maybe don't consider that, like what is out there that they can't see what is above them because of compounding weather. Um, And maybe they're stepping into terrain that really isn't appropriate for that day. So I I like the tenant you brought up about, you need to be able to see the hazard to understand it and to manage it. Um, Otherwise you should just stay out from underneath it and out from away from it. Um, But kind of bringing it back into the operational sphere um, with a ski area that's that's opened, and you've you've gotten your terrain openings mostly in hand for the season. Um, you've been able to get skiers on the slopes to disturb the snow um, in the bigger terrain. You've been able to manage it with explosives. You've been able to gather data and understand the characteristics of the the weak layers in the snowpack, and and you're feeling good about the terrain that you have open, and you're getting it skied day after day. But then let's say you get a large weather event, uh, maybe a prolonged storm cycle. How then do, do you and your team work together to kind of manage the decision points to open terrain to get it skied and try to mitigate the hazard that way versus maybe, um, and then potentially exposing workers to risk versus like you were saying a missed opportunity. Um, so like either end of that operational risk band, how do you, find a point in the middle. That's a happy medium.
0: And so you're saying like, this is after a big storm cycle or uh, kind of mid cause uh, I guess that's.
1: Yeah. Let's, let's stay with, you know, the tail end of the cycle, you know, that the storm is going to be winding down and, and you need to be able to get terrain open in the near term so that you can get the, the hazards skied down.
0: Uh, I mean, it's never—it's tricky because we have—I mean, almost every drainage is topped with large avalanche paths. So um, you know, we our our go-to is the uh, west side of the resort first, and uh, and just kind of tiptoeing back into all these areas you know, a threshold that we have at Snowbird is five inches of water and you're basically reopening a wild resort. Um, just if it receives five inches of water in a short period of time, basically everything's gone back country and you need to assess every little pocket again. And uh, so that's just gonna take time I and mean, we're gonna go, you know, for our standard openings and then branch out from there it's snowbirds a wild mountain in that you, you have to do control to run pretty much all lifts, but one <laughs> and the highway has to control above that lift to open the side of things.
1: <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of overlapping problems there um, when you look at it from the big picture. So, you know, managing a group of folks that are, having to go out into terrain um, and and start dealing with the hazard uh, with the tools that they're accustomed to using. Um, What are some of your kind of communication points to your teams when let's say you are opening the resort again, after it's been um, snowing really hard um, and you've maybe received that threshold value of five inches of, of water content that you just described Uh, What's kind of that mindset that you try to impart on your, on your team?
0: Well, in that case, it's just go slow and be thorough Um, and don't trust anything. I would say, take lots of explosives and before you ski across something, you can throw an explosive in it. It's really about protecting our workers who are out there. Who, as they're doing their work, are protecting structures and subsequent workers down on the lower on the slope. So that's the the take-home point I would give to anyone in any meeting would be: we just need to go slow and work our way back into the train and get a feel for what's going on and uh, not hang it out there and you know this ties back into operational risk band and what's acceptable for our workers and uh, if we start to see a, a worker is caught in a slide and deploys we'll make note of that but if we start to see a couple workers caught in deploying their airbags in a slide that's a a problem and we've obviously communicated something wrong something poorly and uh, we need to regroup and come up with a better plan and it, it might just be wait a day on that terrain if one is getting hurt it could just be on them but if several patrollers are getting caught in avalanches it's a team and it's a collective mistake that we we have all made especially up in the Snow safety office and we need to stop and, and regroup.
1: Yeah, and, and recognizing when it's time to error correct, I think is a really important thing and not to just continue to push on. And I've I've noticed as an industry at large, we really are migrating our mindsets into this team approach where everybody has an opinion to share. That opinion has weight, um, particularly as it's backed up with evidence from what they've seen, let's say on their route. And, uh, and the ability to share that with a snow safety team and, and for the snow safety team, then to kind of say like, you know what, you're right. Like we need to stop and reassess. We need to, to maybe throttle back. I I loved what you said about just waiting another day. Um, and, and that's something I think that can really easily be applied over to the recreational spectrum or just what professionals do on their day off, but just skiing for fun in the backcountry is maybe it's just not the day wait a day. And maybe that's maybe it's on a day you actually can see the hazard, um, but it's just not manageable. Um,
0: I think yeah. that was the key to Albert to Spain, the original postman to Alta. His long career um, occurred because if it snowed a bunch in the canyon, he would just wait 48 hours before he went up the canyon. And, uh, that's how he avoided ever having any real issues and he had a long career. So just wait a day. We
1: just got to impart that mindset on some of our paying clientele, right? After we get a 20 inch storm and they want to ski it. (laughs) So let's talk about that situation a little bit. You know, um, when you are in charge of managing a ski areas openings, um, And you feel like you have the ability to open new terrain and you have the team that's doing it. How do you balance that like too conservative, you know, lower type one error on the operational risk band with something that's just that's too risky and and is not worth it no matter um, what the the clientele may be pushing you to do?
0: Well, our our patrol will definitely clue us in on if we're pushing it too much, like if it's going to be hazardous And we've definitely got to trust them. And then, you know, on the other side of things on a normal storm day, like, like the 20th storm, you, you say in the morning when we show up and and instability is going to decrease through the day. We're going to see temps up into the twenties and wind dying down and snow dying down. In my mind on those days, it's like we as a patrol can open as much terrain as we can work on, you know, as, as we can control. And the there's no limit on it, uh, in my mind, other than time, time of the day. And, and you know, the in, inevitable gravity storm where people start getting, public starts getting hurt. Uh, just by skiing down groomed runs and then we lose uh, manpower to running wrecks off the hill and then that depletes our ability to run control. But, I mean, there's many days where we can just go for as much as we can and the only limiting that factor is time. And, it, you know, those days it, where people – there's lots of wrecks on the hill and it starts – to take away our manpower, those days where we can't open terrain that we could have had there not been wrecks is a bummer. But, I mean, the opportunity will exist for the next day to open it. But those days where, yeah, like the conditions are going to change overnight. The snow is going to settle. And maybe the quality conditions are going to go away. But, you know, that's what we're here for is we're here to help out our public once the mountains open. And uh, that's our def main priority, keeping them safe and getting them down when they're injured.
1: Yeah, it's not always just about opening up terrain for skiing. It's about managing the whole mountain. And I think that's one of the really fun parts about being a ski patroller is that your job's never the same day in and day out. Um, although this year things are a little different right with uh, not only the ongoing pandemic but here in the Wasatch we've had a we've had a bit of a lackluster winter if I could say it Um, maybe this isn't a unique season in your career um, in that respect I know we've had some low snow years here in the Wasatch since you joined us and I and I joined the team in 2010 what what do you and the team do to kind of stay sharp on those uh, when we're in the doldrums, let's call them?
0: Well, there's always plenty of projects to do. Um, And there's always plenty of training to do. And that's, that's something that the patrol definitely enjoys, Uh, you know, going through avalanche scenarios and then dog training and just training with avalanche rescue gear, you know, the RECO is a challenging device to use and it's always good to get that in people's hands because I do think that it is a good tool. And so just keeping sharpening the saw, you know, keeping our skills ready to go. Um, And then, you know, these low snow years challenge us in other ways too. I mean, we're, you know, trying to open more terrain, and uh, just wondering, is it feasible to do so? And uh, you know, is the is there quality skiing? And you know, then there's plenty of other projects as well, like weather stations can always be fine tuned, and <laughs> uh, put in put in. Locations that, new locations that may or may not work. So, and, you know, preparing for bettering the operation so that when it does snow again, we're maybe faster and more prepared to respond to snowy conditions.
1: Yeah, and hopefully those snowy conditions will return to us here before long. Um, you mentioned training and, and kind of sharpening the saw. Uh, so that's a, a good transition point to um, one of the other things I wanted to talk to you about, which was kind of avalanche education in general, um, as it pertains to both the recreational side of things and the professional side. Uh, you've gone through the progression here in the states as it as it once was, up through your level three. Um, but tell us about some of the opportunities you took after that to continue your education, um, even beyond what was you know our national
0: highest level of training? Well, just through like, um, happenstance, uh, by the time I learned about avalanche courses in Canada, I had more or less all of the requirements except one checked off. Um, you know, I had, uh, avalanche one through three done. And then I had taken a winter weather forecasting class, and started to look at the uh, option to go to Canada for their Ops 2 program and I just needed a pro rescue course and I took that course the pro rescue course offered here in, the, in, in Utah and um, turned out to be one of my favorite avalanche courses I've taken because it was a lot more action-based than lots of avalanche courses are And so once I completed that, I just started to fill out the paperwork to enroll into the Canadian, um, industrial training program, operations two, and got into that program and I completed it in January last year, right before things shut down in March. So I was fortunate to have gotten that done because it is, Uh, the Canadian Ops 2 was a three-module course and you had to do those three modules in two years and last year I just needed to complete Module 3 and I did that in January and if I had waited longer basically they've done a whole revamp on the Canadian Ops 2 at this point and it would have been challenging to kind of go through that this year with the travel restrictions, I guess I couldn't have even done that, but um, you know, a lot of students up there have been waylaid in their progression because of coronavirus and it's happened up there and down here as well. So that was my experience with the Canadian education system. And I, I do think that I'm not finished going to Canada to learn from the folks up there either as guiding classes or more avalanche mapping or avalanche courses Um, yeah
1: nice and i want to come back to that guiding piece in a moment but um, as far as the differences or the the strengths that you saw of the canadian program maybe in relation to the american program what what did you kind of see as What were some like really uh, savory bits from your time up there in the ops program with the Canadian avalanche association?
0: Well, the module one of the ops two was uh, all classroom based and it was all group dynamics and uh, group uh, group thinking and, you know, how people work together. And I thought it was really pretty, um, interesting course, you know, obviously classroom courses can be kind of boring, but in this case, it was a four day course. And like, I thought it was great. I thought it was, I would recommend it to anyone who's like gone along the U S program and, uh, those four days just really kind of open-eyed to operational mistakes and operational decision making. Um, that being said, they have changed that module one, and now it is no longer a four-day classroom course. It's mixed in with uh, on-snow sessions and combined with the mod two. So um, that uh, that is no more. Right. So
1: it may not be quite the same experience as it once was, but my understanding is that the curriculum redevelopment has still taken a lot of those same pieces and, and refined them, streamlined them, and, and then migrated them over to mixing them with field in the same mod session. And I know, you know, speaking with you after you'd come back from Canada about your experiences, you always um, really enjoyed your time up there. It's always cool getting into a new mountain range
0: and new snowpack.
1: Where, where did you take your courses uh, in Canada?
0: Well, so the mod one was in Kamloops and it was all classroom based. It was at Thompson river university. And just going back to the, the mod one real quick, like, I think that them combining it with the mod two on snow, uh, probably results in some better learning outcomes, but it does prohibit people, you know, especially people in the States from just taking that October mod one and, and bringing that back to their operation. So it was as it was, was, um, a cool way to just add that portion of the class again. And then when I moved on to the mod two, that was in Whistler and that was the first time I really ever looked at snow in a maritime snowpack. And I probably be all right to not look at that <laughs> again anytime soon. And then I took my, uh, three in Golden, B.C., and so we spent a lot of time in Lake Louise, Banff area, and looking at the continental snowpack, and you actually can cover a couple different snowpacks in that class, um, but we did drive towards the Rockies a lot and uh, got to tough it through some cold weather there.
1: Yeah, no doubt you've shared with me a little bit about how that is a, a challenge to the learning environment when you're trying to keep yourself warm. What was the kind of mental rigor that you had to um, go through for those kinds of courses? I mean, they were multiple days long as they are here, but certainly being away from home is a, is a little bit different. What What was kind of uh, your biggest challenge there?
0: Well, I feel like every course you take – like the days get longer and longer and longer and the expectations are more and more and more. So by the time the mod three rolled around, which is basically the evaluation component of the Canadian ops too, it's the whole thing you're being graded on the whole time. So it's stressful in that regard. And then the amount of, um, products they expect from you when you hand in your portfolio at the end of the week is, it's a lot. Um, So you have to be just monitoring daily weather, you know, they definitely pile it on you in that course. Um, And then throw on top of that, like really cold temps when I was up there in Golden and uh, just being away from family, just being in a hotel room and uh, that, that adds to some of the challenge as well.
1: Yeah, and being in those courses is, is definitely uh, not only formative, but it, it does open your eyes to the way others do things. I, I really applaud your efforts to step outside of your just um, American training to go out and and see how another group is doing it. Yeah, so in the context of the differences of the avalanche education systems, Bremer, um, kind of what? How do you see like the differences transpiring between Canada and the United States? Most uh, apparently
0: well one of the big differences is that uh in canada so many people have to go through the uh up to the ops too that uh and it's all provided by one provider the canadian avalanche association that they set the standard they say guides patrollers, if anyone, if you want to meet the Canadian ops too, you have to get over this bar. Whereas in the U.S. educational system, the avalanche education isn't really obligatory to all segments of the industry. And so uh, advantages and disadvantages of that is in Canada, they set the bar so they know that this is the standard. Um, Disadvantages is is the uh, industrial training program may be less responsive to student needs. Whereas here in the US, if since it's not obligatory, people don't have to meet some avalanche education standard, which means the people who provide avalanche education had better be pretty responsive to the needs of the students, in order to engage them and get them feeling like it's a worthwhile product. So there's um, advantages and disadvantages to both, um, and it does hinge off of if it's required or not. So that's that's the main difference, I think, in the two systems.
1: Yeah, that's a really good way of summarizing it, and and. I think that the American Avalanche Association working with the Course Provider Alliance has done a great job of in, a, in about a four year span from 2013 to 2017, taking all of that collective input and understanding the needs of the population here, um, of professionals and, and what it would be to be a professional training program. And, and already in the three years uh, that the program's running, this is its fourth, there's been incremental input. The, the standards haven't changed. But the way that we reach those standards has changed. And, uh, you know, through our trainers workshops and things like that, we've we've learned from the feedback we've gotten from students on how to improve it. And that's really one of the most exciting things um, I think about the professional training progression here in the States is that we've got this young program with a lot of opportunity for growth and a lot of really cool people involved like yourself. Um, and our students are really really insightful and they provide us with that ability to be responsive in the future. So I think there's a lot of good things to come and of and course providers that are engaged in it now are doing a great job and um, uh, that trend looks to continue into the future.
0: Yeah one thing I'll say about the Canadian side of things is we do have a lot of very similar courses offered in the U.S. but um, up there it's it's obligatory for guides and for patrollers and, uh, you know, ice climbing guides, ski guides. So to get through the Canadian ops too is a prereq to becoming a certified guide in Canada. So all of these, all of these different industries are funneling people into these rescue courses, these weather courses. And, um, and so everybody's going through these. So the quality of these courses is very high, and they're just mass-produced and year done yearly. And uh, you know, and then they also have mapping courses that are done every other year. So you can basically uh, get a very substantial avalanche education up there uh, through the Canadian avalanche association. And it's, you know, year in and year out more or less the industry leader.
1: Yeah. Agreed. They've definitely um, been at it a long time and have been able to incorporate a lot Mm -hmm. of the feedback from not only such a large student body uh, that's relatively geographically condensed, um, but they have, you know, uh, other operators that they work with from outside of the country too. And so
0: I'm excited to check it out as well and see what it's like in the future. The, the number one natural disaster in Canada that kills the most people is avalanches. And so in that way, they, they put a lot of government funding into uh, researching and uh, researching better solutions and, better practices for this and uh, and they have highways that go underneath paths for hundreds and hundreds of miles. So uh, yeah, they definitely have invested a lot of research into avalanches and uh, really have a robust industrial training program, which I do believe the American system was modeled off of and uh you know still maybe four or five years in at this point and uh we'll see where it goes yeah
1: there's definitely a lot of potential and i think that one of the biggest things we can do is continue to reach outside of our own networks and and look to others for training look see what they're doing well and what we can improve and i know the learning goes both ways um i've had some great conversations with the folks at caa and and they're really intrigued by what's happening down here, uh, south of their border um, on the avalanche education front. Uh, I, I did want to return to your comment earlier about maybe some of the other training that you're looking to undertake. You know, you've been an avalanche forecaster uh, both in North America and South America. You've, uh, you've patrolled and you've been an avalanche educator for Airy for many years, course leader. You've come onto our professional training program as an instructor. Uh, what is it about guiding that's intriguing to you?
0: Well, I like the the um, real-time forecasting that you may have to do. I mean, obviously, a lot of this is taken care of in your morning meeting, but, you know, you land on a peak and you don't like what you see. You can just pick everybody up and leave again. And so these decisions are on you each run. So that's really intriguing. And then the ability to just sample terrain of such a wide variety quickly is really, really cool as well. And, you know, like, uh, in the ski area, we have 2,500 acres and, uh, you know, in a year like this, we kind of feel like we're, um, penned in and, uh, I'm I'm not saying that the helicopter guides in our Canyon have a much different situation this year, but um, you know, just thinking about what helicopter operations can do in a good year and the terrain they can get to and sample. It's just really a, a very different perspective on uh, data as well, you know, We get data every ski run at a ski resort, but when you're in a helicopter, maybe you only go to that run once every two, three weeks. So that's that's your data for the next group of guides to come in and deal with.
1: Yeah, it's definitely a, a very good like mental shift when you start working into that world, particularly in the mechanized guiding side of things, um, which sounds like you're the most interested in. Uh, it's also an interesting challenge to assess terrain at, you know, 1200 vertical feet per minute when you're ascending over a ridge and you're looking at your run. Um, you not only need to have a good handle on the snowpack and, and how the snow overlays the terrain, but how are you going to get your group down this piece of terrain safely? Um, where are you going to stack people um, for regroups, where you're going to do the pickup, how you're going to protect the ship. Um, and also managing like fuel in a helicopter skiing operation. When you're a lead guide, you have to be calculating how much fuel you have and stepping into terrain and stepping out of terrain. So it really does seem like this kind of perfect uh, coalescence of all your skill sets. Um, so I think you'll, you'll be a natural fit for it, Chris. And I, I look forward to, to getting out and guiding with you someday. Uh, beyond uh, the patrolling and the educating we get to do together that'd be
0: awesome yeah uh, i'm totally excited for it
1: right on well that kind of brings us towards the end of our hour and um i just want to say thanks for uh the opportunity to speak with you a little bit more um wholeheartedly on some of these topics and and i know that uh there are some other topics um that you're interested in and and perhaps that would make a, a good second episode down the road but I kind of wanted to close it down with uh, maybe in the traditional sense of the avalanche hours. Can you tell us a little bit about maybe one of your like aha moments in your career or or maybe a close call um, or something that really kind of was pivotal in your ascendance as a professional?
0: Yeah, I think, you know, one of the aha moments for me kind of goes back to something I said earlier is like, you know, in the snow safety department at snowboard, we need to be looking at the next chunk of terrain to open the next chunk of terrain to open. And, um, so we're always pushing into new terrain, but I quickly realized that like, if I'm charging ahead and being like, I'm right, like, this is, we need to get this done. We need to get this open. We need to be quick. Like it's not going to work out well. So there's this balance of we do need to be looking at terrain, but um, we need to – we can't charge in headfirst recklessly. Otherwise, my career will be really short. <laughs> and and that that's something I think about a lot. And um, it's easy for me to think, okay, well, if you guys don't want to move into that terrain, um, you know, I can – move into that train, but I need to temper that with, am I ignoring obvious red flags that my coworkers, my patrollers are telling me? So just balancing those two, there's, there's a push to move forward. And it's important to listen to uh, that, which is telling you to slow down
1: sage advice thanks Bremer well I hope that uh, the remainder of the season here in the Wasatch continues to uh, go well for you um, despite the conditions or or the other world events that are definitely weighing on us day to day it's important to be out there skiing and it's it's great that you can share that with your family as well here as you're you're bringing your son up in the mountains and uh, I hope that We have many, many more days in the mountains together. Thanks again for the opportunity to sit down with us here and and share some of your experiences with our listeners.
0: Yeah, thanks, Sean. All right, man. I'll see you on the hill. Absolutely.
2: Well, that wraps it up. Thanks again to our sponsors, MND Safety, 10 Barrel Brewing, and Interwest Insurance. Make sure to subscribe and rate and review our podcast on any of your streaming services, or just tell a friend. Word of mouth goes a long way. Music for today's episode was provided by permission from Ketza. You can find more of their tracks at ketza.uk. And as always, artwork provided by Mike T. You can find him online at miketea.com. And if you don't want to miss an episode coming up in the future, follow us on Instagram and Facebook. Until next time, keep your tips up and maintain the ability to be surprised.